Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. What we value in education greatly informs both the kind of research that takes place and the technologies that are developed in support. Globally, there are countless important skills that people learn or should learn that are not currently valued as part of a good education. Educational research findings and the tools offered by learning technologies can contribute to more effective and engaging learning design. But are there important skills that are not being developed because they are ignored by the researchers and the edtech sector? Does what we value hinder our potential to improve important skills needed in the future of work? My guest has spent her career immersed in both the research and practice of learning, and has been addressing this issue in terms of designing both research and learning technologies. Dr. Alison Clark Wilson is Professorial Research Fellow at UCL Knowledge Lab at University College London Institute of Education. Her research focuses on school mathematics education, particularly on the design and use of digital technologies and the related professional development for teachers. She also coordinates UCL's founding partnerships with the European EdTech Network that brings together EdTech experts, innovators, higher education professionals, and students in order to connect the best specialists with the most creative minds from all over Europe, providing them with the most relevant EdTech content to foster innovation in the field of higher education. Among her extensive publications, Alison also edited and authored three books, the most recent of which is called The Mathematics Teacher in the Digital Era. This continues to be the most successful book in the series titled Mathematics Education in the Digital Era, published by Springer Nature. Thank you very much, Alison, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, Kinga. I'm really delighted that you invited me. I followed very close to your work for, for many years and really, really enjoyed all the research and the writing that you do. So I'm very excited to talk about this overarching topic that, that encapsulates a lot of the different type of work that you do and something that is, I think, very, very relevant in this time when education is fluctuating between the virtual and the real world. And we're all questioning what exactly education is for and how education research plays a role in that. Before we really delve into that topic, can you tell me what do we as a society value as good education? What do you think that is? I think it's a great question, Kinga, to start with, because, you know, when we think about how education systems evolved and the history of education around the world, one of the things that everybody um, would agree on is that the major role that education plays is that rubber stamping of, you know, that a child has achieved a certain something or that um, that some, some validated assessment says something about us individually. Really, much of what has driven our education system have has been that rubber stamping in the form of the formal examinations that you know everybody recognizes that that really has driven everything so in in a case if it couldn't be assessed in a timed written examination and an exam hall then it, it hasn't really been valued in my opinion yes absolutely and what do you think we're losing in that 
well, if we go back to it, I mean, so many examples are still individuals sat at a single desk with just a paper and a pencils and maybe a, a few uh, bits of uh, tools around them. But, you know, on the whole, it's you on your own with your head. Yes. and your mind and what you can remember and and it's assessed through writing now obviously yeah. that doesn't apply to more creative subjects you know dance or music where there's an element of performance mm -hmm. and I think that's the key word here is you know there's so many parts of what we um, teach in schools that you know they all have an aspect of performance to them but that that performance isn't necessarily valued equally across the disciplines um, so in my own subject mathematics you know performance of mathematics can be done individually it can be done in groups it can be done over a long time or a short time and, and those different aspects of performance are really important uh, but they, they certainly aren't valued very highly in the current assessment um, of mm. mathematics yeah, I mean, there's just so much that we can get into in that in that area of assessment and what that what we should be valuing. Um, but what do you so let's just talk about what do you think we should be valuing in education? And of course, that's a question that's been asked for centuries. Um, but in today's world, what do you think we should really the top of mind we should be really thinking about? Yeah. So I think you know what is key to us as humans having the capacity and the skills and the expertise necessary to tackle some of the really big global problems and issues that we have. I mean, mm -hmm. we only have to switch on the TV or the radio and we're inundated with the challenges of the world, whether it's finding a vaccine, sorting out how we can support people when they're migrating due to, you know, huge issues around climate change or, or political unrest or, or, or violent, you know, or violent situations. So we've got these capacities we need in humans uh, to not only be able to be resilient in those situations, mm -hmm. but also to collectively think through how we can make things a bit better. And mm -hmm. I think that make it a bit better has got to be the, you know, the driving trajectory for us as humans in, in thinking about all that we do. And obviously education is a huge part of that. So how do we take children who are inherently curious at the age of two, three, four, five, and nurture that curiosity to enable them in 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years time to be resilient, to continue to want to mm -hmm. <laughs> strive to make the world a better place. And, and it, if we do that, we all learn along the way and what it is and what it is for, so that the end goal is to make the world a better place, fundamentally. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, how these other subjects and exams and all the formalities of education align with that rather than sort of act as something that sort of goes on the side. We do all of that, and then we have to work out how to solve the problems when we get to the end of it. <laughs> so exactly. I think it is, that's that rethinking is, you know, what would an education system look like where we take advantage of what we've got now, which are the, you know, the digital tools and the opportunities to work and collaborate together so that we can then be really purposeful in the way that we design our education systems and that they're dynamic, they can change. You know, yes. we're never gonna find one that lasts forever. We're right. gonna have to find ways that we can be more flexible 
in the way that we design and review and, and act around um, curricula and their assessment. That is such an important, uh, such an important aspect. And of course, that's a huge area to rethink and to see how this fits together. But that's the essence of it is that we do need to think about those big issues. And what you just said about lifelong learning, about changing and continuously learning, which should be embedded in school, shouldn't it? It's somehow you know, we're still in that mindset, I think, often that in school we learn and then we go into the workplace and we and we work. What do you think maybe schools should be doing to change that mindset? Well, I have an interesting perspective on this idea of lifelong learning because I don't even think it exists as a construct. We are all, as human beings, lifelong learners. That for me is a given. We clearly learn throughout our lives. We learn to speak and walk and talk often without any lessons. <laughs> and, and we learn a whole host of other things in our lives, providing we have opportunities to experience, you know, things that are gonna take us forward in different directions. And obviously an element of reflection helps there. So recognizing A, that you are learning and B, that that learning somehow contributes to something purposeful or useful is really helpful, but we don't always do that. That. we just we just learn all the time because we've got receptors eyes and ears that are incredibly sensitive to what's going on around us and yeah. it's interesting that you know we learn some things that will be valued by somebody as being good and we learn other things that are less valued or in some ideas you know are, are seen as bad so it's this idea of how can we help everybody to recognize and for it to be recognized what they're learning, how they're learning, and which bits of that we need to even tag or measure or be aware of, because we clearly couldn't ever tag a human's learning <laughs> throughout a whole lifetime because it's infinite and it's also um, not necessary to do so. So what, what, of, what, what of what we are learning is valuable? to be in some way recognized. And that's really where assessment comes in. It's, it's the recognizable learning points that somehow if you put them together, give you a picture that is valuable to somebody else and the learner themselves to go to some next step or to go in some direction. So if I give a very tangible example, you know, let's think about learning a language. So if we think about learning a second language in, a, in an education setting, uh, we've got elements of that that might be necessary because you want to go and teach that language or you want to take up a job that requires you to work in that second language. Yeah. What of that language learning is going to be most relevant there? And, and that's what, that will vary depending right. on the context or the direction that you might might be going in so just having a GCSE in the subject or an A-level in the subject or a degree in the subject still often doesn't give enough information about what is relevant or valuable from that learning to go into those next routes so a little of this is is really trying to make the important bits more visible and I think one of the assets we have in this whole process which sounds incredibly complicated is the learner because the learner will probably know best <laughs> because it's, it's about them, right. where and how um, any prior learning might be useful in, in a next direction. So that's another aspect of our current system. We don't recognize enough the learner's self-assessment and the role of the learner's self-assessment within our assessment processes and structures. Everybody else has to sort of validate it from outside when actually 
a lot of the time, a conversation with a learner <laughs> tells you as much as you need to know. I mean, we have to look at the one of the most highest education qualifications, the PhD. You produce a document, but it's examined in an oral examination. Yes, yeah, we absolutely. talk with the student. We ask them about their, their understanding, their learning, and we learn more in that than, than sometimes from, from reading the document. So mm. it's this balance of, of, of how we gather the evidence, if you like. Right. To to be able to say important points. Yeah, this this person seems to have what it takes to go to wherever this next step might be. So it needs to become somehow more personalized. And with technology, that is possible, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. It is. I mean, certainly, I mean, what can we do? We can do things at great distance. I mean, how amazing is it now that, you know, I'm, over the last year, I've examined PhDs from students all over the world when, you know, that probably wouldn't have been the case had we now all made this huge shift to, you know, conducting PhD vivas online, for example. Yes. But, you know, if I take it down to, um, you know, to school level and we think, about you know there's been a lot that hasn't been possible during school closures when a lot of teaching and learning has been pushed online for schools but at the same time many teachers have spoken how they have been able to connect much more directly with learners mm. because somehow they're kind of caring about them a little bit more yeah. now that they don't see the faces or they don't hear them on a daily basis so yeah. I think we have been prompted to think through this sort of huge technological revolution that has happened over the last 18 months or so how some new possibilities are going to come about mm -hmm. um, because of that yes absolutely and there is that possibility of we have gone to the classroom, the university lecture hall with 300 people. Actually, now with technology, we can start coming back to, to a more personalized format. And I really, I really like what you said that we need to talk to the student to understand what exactly are they going to use this for, where, where are their understanding, and incorporate that in the assessment as well, which is really interesting. Um, but in terms of lifelong learning outside of the classroom, I mean, we often think about it as in a classroom, but we leave school, we go into the workplace, even in the workplace, we might go into a classroom to do some extra training. But then there's a lot that happens outside of a classroom, which is increasingly more important to incorporate. So what would it look like to be thinking about lifelong learning outside of the classroom? What do you think we should be really considering yes I mean I think again it, it comes down to what do we need to log or capture and what can we just treat as life you know mm -hmm. I mean there's plenty of stuff that we do in life that you know may, may contribute to our learning but we don't need to sort of capture that for anything yes. really significant so I'll give you an example I used to go to when I was a teenager I went to tailoring classes I used okay. to make my own clothes I wanted to learn how to make really smart sharp jackets and suits um, mm -hmm. and I took myself off to tailoring classes I didn't do a qualification I have tailoring skills it doesn't come up very often in the work I do now that I need to declare I have tailoring skills <laughs> yes. um, but it's there it's part of my identity that I am a prolific you know, a crafter knitter sewer very few people know that of me yeah. um, but it's interesting that you know I haven't to now needed to have evidence or pro produce anything in that direction although that is very much part of my own lifelong learning so you know and does that matter well probably not I don't need to tell people about that it's just part of me but you never know I think is the thing here no, I don't know what I might be doing in 10 years time. So is it that we need to have maybe it's a, 
I'm going to say light touch digital portfolios that perhaps give us the invitation to log and, and connect up our lifelong learning in some way. Mm. I mean, whenever we start thinking about portfolios or, or any sort of digital record, if you like, of, of, of our stuff. Right now, it's probably a paper folder somewhere in a box in the attic um, that captures this. But, you know, now we do know that it's much easier to log outcomes that might be of, of note and just tag them to us. Now, what does that need? It needs everybody to have an identity number that's unique to them and they can take it and move around the world so if I go do a bit of study in South America or in in in, in um, I don't know in, in in an Asian country there's some sort of portability around qualifications and as we are becoming such a much more globally engaged human um, population then these are the sorts of discussions that start to have but they're very contentious you know when you have people not wanting to have a single unique identifier <laughs> as a human and, you know, I've long joked that, you know, it won't be long before we're chipped at birth because, you know, we can then have that chip in our arm and we'll go off and it's got our bank records, it's got our education record, it's got our health record, but it sounds awful. It doesn't sound like a direction we want to go in at all. So I think we face big ethical and moral dilemmas in that, you know, going in some direction is clearly beneficial, both at a system level and at an individual level, but there are aspects of that that really feel a bit too big brother. But I think these are big decisions and directions, and it's hard to see when you don't have a high uh, proportion of a population take up opportunities like that. It, it Then you end up with students uh, or learners who are disenfranchised or perhaps don't get opportunities um, or perhaps aren't supported in the same way. So I think we have this, you know, this, this aspect of the digital divide can really work against us in that the majority of the digitally connected might take advantage of having a good educational learner record, whereas those who are outside of that system would very firmly be disenfranchised from, um, from really engaging in, in lifelong learning. So yes. lots to think about there, lots to think about. <laughs> lots to think about, definitely. And on the, on the system side, definitely that's a very interesting idea with the international... Learner record, yes. yes. <laughs> practically a learning record or L LMS. Um, but on an individual side of it, I mean, as we are, and we are continuously learning, but in a such a constantly changing world, how do you think should we be making it as an individual more intentional? And how should we be making it more intentional outside of the classroom throughout our lives to be learning skills that are useful? How should we be thinking about that? I think there's two perspectives here because I think there is the perspective of what's needed in my sort of professional working career sort of oriented a set of goals and what what is there in the bit in the space that is outside of that so you know where's my creative opportunities for learning where's the things that I yeah. do for pleasure essentially rather than to yes. some more sort of um, probably pragmatic or work oriented goals because in the work situation it's easy to see how there's a two way here for employers it's really that they have a responsibility to us as employees to 
both support us to identify where we might need um, to prioritize certain areas for further development, whilst also helping us to be able to log and reflect and, and be supported in making those decisions. It's in their best interest. And Absolutely. you can argue, you know, it opens up promotion opportunities. It helps you know where your career might be progressing or how you might um, move towards other areas that maybe you didn't think of. And that will very much be determined by the nature of the organization you work for. If you work in the local coffee shop, you may not have those that sort of conversation in the same way that you might if you work for a large corporate who have you know hugely development human resource um, uh, functions within their organizations for exactly that focus to to to, to make, make you know increase productivity and and grow companies and organizations so there's another divide and there's always you know where there's a there's a, a good case scenario there's always a, a, a scenario you can see where it will hold people back so that's the workplace sort of focus there. And then if we go to, you know, our own sort of personal um, pursuits and, and the things we do in our leisure time, well, you might argue, well, where's the need? You know, if, I, if I'm self-directed in the way that I'm developing my guitar playing or my, um, or, mm -hmm. you know, how well I'm doing in my running or whatever, or just developing those cooking skills, you know, who really needs to, to, to know about that? Well, I think that's where it's a little bit more uncertain. So I think that, you know, there's elements of informal learning that just contribute to us as, as humans, you know, and our place and, and role in, in, in our sort of lives and families and, and, and working relationships. So I don't know that we need to formalize all of that. <laughs> I, think, I think having an option to maybe tag a few things here and there, but, you know, ultimately um, it, it's really for individuals to decide just how much of that they want to share really yes exactly no that is and it's something that we as individuals need to think about need to think about what we want to learn and why and how we want to learn it but as you said it doesn't need to be assessed or formalized in that sense but something to think about um absolutely and and as you just said, the word informal learning, and, uh, and that is a huge topic in research and in education. So informal learning for young children is well recognized and uh, great programs have been developed for them. But what are some interesting examples that you have seen of informal learning? Let me have a think on that one. So because of course, children learn all the time. And they are much better at it than yeah. adults. Yeah, I mean, I suppose often. the classic um, assessment of informal learning certainly happens when children enter kindergarten. And it's like, and actually in the UK here, there's a massive debate going on now because we have a new baseline assessment for very young children as they as they enter into the uh, kindergarten classes in schools. So you know, in that three to five mm -hmm. year sort of um, age range. Um, which is very focused on what would be seen as really quite formal learning goals. Um, and that element yes. of play, which we know is essential in preschool um, children's mm -hmm. um, learning experiences, somehow is getting distorted because, you know, whenever there's any sort of baseline, the, the smart parents and the smart 
childcare organizations start sort of gearing things almost towards the test <laughs> and you lose that whole ethos of of what is you know very play-based kindergarten education so I, I think oh, mm. there's always challenges whenever somebody wants to put some assessment framework on it's there often in um, with good intentions but so often it then distorts what happens in the learning process because they're seen as the only end goals. Um, and I think this is challenging thinking about how we make sense of informal learning in ways that then don't go against the, the whole reason for it in the first place. So if I if I say, right, okay, so I go to my local evening class to learn, improve my baking skills. If I get presented with this set of learning outcomes, you know, on day one for my baking classes, when I'm going along really quite informally to have a bit of fun baking, you know, how does that make me yeah. think about whether I'm getting value for money and what I'm paying for that course? You know, mm -hmm. have I <laughs> ticked all those boxes or do I need to go back and say, well, actually, on week three, when you were teaching, you know, raising agents <laughs> and my, my bread just never did rise. I'm really not sure that I got you for money. So I think it, it, it's exactly. finding this, this sensible balance so that everything doesn't become um, doesn't lose its essence of that informality um, by um, imposing or, or adding these extra sort of uh, quality assurance um, ideas uh, onto courses that may be paid for. So again, I think um, a lot of it you get over with communication, you know, by actually saying, right, this is, this is the vision for the program that we're, we're looking at here. This is how we approach the teaching and learning of it, because, you know, we really think it's important that you get a good social um, experience learning to bake, <laughs> uh, that you have fun, that, that it's something that you want to come back to week after week. Um, and, and so I think it, it's not trying to be too, apply too many of the learning sciences, I would say, to some of these informal learning opportunities, but to be mindful of them in the pedagogies and everything that underpins what you're doing, but to make it really clear to anyone who is on those um, programs and courses, you know, what the ethos or the, the values are that actually underpin uh, what it's there for. Absolutely. That's a really, that's a really good point because in increasingly more trains young children and students to perform for the test, to always know what the outcome has to be, which goes completely against what you have to do more of which is informal learning, being aware of what you want to learn, what you want to get out of it, being intentional about it, but not necessarily in a formal setting, maybe in a formal setting, like you said, in a cooking class, but maybe not in a formal setting in the sense of in putting in a little bit of extra foreign language into your daily routine so that you can learn that new language and, and being intentional in that kind of integrating into your life. And so as a child, if you're already told you're going to be tested on this in kindergarten and this is the outcome, it's almost like taking away that awareness that sometimes I need to be directing my own learning for my own purposes, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, the, the challenge and really this in some ways drives everything is what is it possible to assess 
because you know there's a there's a lot of things that right now we're very underdeveloped in terms of our understanding of how to assess um i'll give you an example mm-hmm. you know people talk about 21st century skills of problem solving collaboration teamwork critical thinking design thinking all of these ideas they're incredibly difficult to assess um, even once you put a mm-hmm. sort of content area to them, um, it's really not straightforward how you determine, particularly when you think about collaboration, teamwork, those sorts of ideas, where or how <laughs> that actually happens. How does that scenario mm-hmm. bring about learning in, it, in its participants? Um, we don't know, and we probably never will, to be honest. So, you know, it's being sensible about, and this is where, again, self and peer assessment comes in. If I'm working in a collaboration, team I've got my perception on how we all did and how I did in the functioning of the team but equally my peers have got their perceptions of me and how I did or didn't contribute to the to the goal that that the team was working towards so it's that sort of 360 view and then there may well be a tutor who sees across the group in a different way and and this is the point is you've got you know multiple perceptions there of the same scenario how do you then decide yes. well how do i get to a grade or how do i get to something that lets me evaluate <laughs> or assess the outcomes there for the individual for the group uh, and there's some good strategies i mean there, there are strategies there i mean a really interesting one uh, one that we employ in a couple of um, programs that um that that i'm affiliated with at ucl is this idea that the group gets the lowest grade of any participant in the group and this is a really interesting approach because what this does is stop everybody working individually you know i'm going to get what i can out of the group work to get the best grade i can but actually to say right how are we doing right who's struggling because ultimately the group has to bring everybody's standard up to get the best grade and yeah. it's a very subtle shift in the way that we think about assessing group work um, and the way that that might work that actually does push individuals to think more about the others in the group and less about themselves right. um, and I think this is this this um, it lets me just go to one really important thing about our systemic assessment processes which is so often we're only going forward towards individual grades and goals so we're pitching everyone in the human race against each other in this race to the top or this race to solve the problems which isn't that helpful because you know ultimately knowing I'm better than you isn't really that important in the end (laughs) what's important is that we (laughs) together can somehow collaborate to solve um you know to, to work and solve on some of these really big challenges and the interesting thing is that on the surface every education system and school says that we're trying to teach teamwork and we do a lot of working in teams but as you said these very subtle ways of setting up those teams and assessments uh, for them actually goes completely against it because everyone is being very individualistic but working in yeah. a group what else do you w- would you suggest maybe well, I mean I think I mean this there's a whole area it's not my personal area of research here I'm mean, just aware mm-hmm. that that collaborative problem solving approaches and the way that assessment works within that is is complex um, and actually it does yeah. usually end up with some really quite complex rubrics um, because in mm-hmm. order to do a holistic assessment 
assessment, you need to take elements from different parts. You still need to assess individual skills often in a, in a content area. Do actually still need to know that an individual has got some core skills that are deemed to be important to the discipline. However, it's often in the application of those core skills that we need to slightly, mm -hmm. um, I would say, increase the proportion of the overall assessment that takes that into account. So whereas now a lot of examinations are only going with the former, they're only focused on assessing the individual skills, you would be looking at how you would create a new assessment form that would, would prioritise or maybe give a greater emphasis to that, that problem solving or, or the team or the collaborative work that, that goes on in the application of those skills. So another great example is to think right. about music and think about, you know, performance in music is still quite individually, individually assessed. Um, however, what if you are a musician who really only functions in a, in a group with others playing, making music? You know, if you are a, music, a student studying um, towards uh, you know, jazz music, you would want to have some assessment that valued your role in a jazz group. <laughs> um, so, you know, this yes. is a, a good example. Now, it's not so obvious in other subjects how that works. Um, for example, uh, I'll go back to maths. I mean, so maths is seen as such an, as a, such an individualized um, area of the curriculum when actually you know what does it mean when you bring together students who are su uh, studying in humanities or social sciences um, for which the application of the mathematical ideas is absolutely crucial if you're an environmental scientist mm -hmm. and you're really looking to tackle or work with with geographers looking at how you know aspects of, of um, changing landscapes and uh, weather patterns are influencing climate change you're going to want some good mathematicians in there who can model and understand your problem in a way to give you visualizations or data that is going to help you to understand the science of your own subject. So this is where we need these Definitely. interdisciplinary teams. What does it look like to assess a project when you've got interdisciplinary teams? So these are things that we should be really thinking about grappling with if we are going to advance the way in which we use the technology to help some of these assessment processes develop. Mm, there's definitely a real need to investigate why we're doing what we're doing and to reassess and redesign uh, to make sure that it's achieving the goals that we want. And in doing that, research is, of course, extremely important. So let's talk about research for a little bit. So it greatly informs, of course, how we learn and what we learn. And hopefully it really infuses the, the education system, the research that comes out so does what we value in education skew what we also research in education? We, so we talked a little bit about what we want to value is not necessarily what we value. How does this skew the research that is going yeah. on in, in learning science? It's a fantastic question, Kinga, because most of the things when I, I think about them, I, I think about the history of how we've got to where we are, because I think that's how we really get mm -hmm. clues of how we're actually developing. Uh, you know, as, a, as a human race in terms of our knowledge and understanding of this incredibly complex world that we find ourselves in. So if we think about educational research, when it began, the model was that, you know, essentially knowledge was a thing that 
that sort of existed in the brain. It was totally individual. Um, and that ultimately, you know, we just needed to focus on uh, looking very closely, researching very closely individuals to try to understand sort of what learning meet, what learning looks like, how humans develop. You know, it was a very cognitive psychological perspective. And we were very driven mm -hmm. by the psychological methods that came out of um, that whole period. So if we think about that, mm -hmm. then we're thinking about learning as this situated in the brain of the learner, a scenario where we watch or we apply tests or we do you know, various psychometric measures to try to make sense of what learning is and what it looks like and how we can recognize when it happens. Now, Fast mm -hmm. forward 150 years, and, and it's very, very different now. So we, we totally see learning as part of a socio-cultural um, experience. We learn by the group through the, the experiences of, uh, that we have in the groups that we have them with. Um, and we also take a very multimodal view on it. So I gesture like mad. In a podcast, you won't see it. But if you see me talk, <laughs> I cannot talk without my hands. I'm a gesturer. Now, it's really interesting that the role of gesture and the way in which we all these extra communication clues come into learning situations, the huge impact they can have in the way that we experience learning, and even more so the way that we use tangible tools and devices, our, our hands uh, in particular, to interact with, in some cases, technological devices. But we've got this very interesting multimodal science that has grown up in thinking about how all of our channels are used in, in the learning processes. Mm -hmm. So the educational research, which has really you know, expanded phenomenally over the last 50 years in particular, is really taking a much more holistic view on us as humans. Um, and without that research, you know, we'd still be stuck very much in this mode of probably more didactic, teacher-directed um, teaching and learning, mm -hmm. which, you know, is still out there without a doubt, but we are slowly mm -hmm. shifting to appreciate that learning involves these this much more multidimensional uh, experience for, for humans. Absolutely. That is a very, very important point to realize the past and how we moved here and how at each point different effects were brought to light and and what we should be paying attention to. So what do you think we should be paying attention to in the terms of the direction in which education research is going? Yes, I mean, what's interesting, what interests me a lot, I mean, I think I've mentioned already that the, um, the various learning theories around um, problem-based and collaborative learning. So I think that, you know, understanding mm -hmm. what learning looks like when you are essentially giving groups of learners challenges to work on through which the teacher or carefully chosen challenges I would say by the teacher because it's to elicit the particular parts of the subject's knowledge or skills or expertise that they are looking to engender in the learners and the teacher crafts those problem-based tasks to enable the learners to be able to meet new terminology, meet new techniques or put techniques and terms or into application through some sort of output. So that project is very important. It's not any old project. It's usually a very well-designed, careful project. And then from that, to be able to look at um, um, you know, what is the lens that we need to observe 
those sorts of pro, uh, collaborative problem solving um, activities in order to be able to support some assessment to be made. And this is where the science of, of that field is looking particularly interesting. And the way in which the different technologies that might be employed in that learning process generate data that might allow us to bring together dashboards and give some visibility to the teacher or the lecturer and the students themselves about how they're doing and in a formative sense in terms of you know in order that they can improve their performance and outcomes along the way but also in some sort of summative sense that has value and is credible within the system that it's being de designed for so if i take that scenario into a primary school setting we probably only need to worry about a way that teachers can consistently um, come up with some sort of grades or feedback that is, is valuable in that system. Um, whereas if that scenario mm -hmm. is in a university, it might well have to feed into some sort of formal qualification or module grade. So it needs to be describable, it needs to be articulate, and it needs to be replicable. So, you know, any tutor any year is going to be able to apply and, and make the same sort of judgments. So we think we talk about validity and reliability, you know, when we think about research methods. Well, in teaching, we also need to think about validity and reliability in terms of the assessment methods but not to be too over scientific about it because the reality of classrooms and schools and teachers you know we operate at different levels so you know but it, there's no reason why we can't apply the learning sciences uh, but come up with ways that are reasonable to expect in different mm -hmm. um, learning situations so I think that's where you know the learning sciences and, and the educational research really help because they give us the sort of the top level rubrics if you like but they all need to be thought through again in the actual context of the classroom or the lecture room or or, or, or wherever the learning yes. is taking place um, so it's hard Definitely. but it, it's doable it's doable <laughs> Absolutely. And it's that constant collaboration between the practice and the research Absolutely. that that really helps to uh, to make that a reality. So we touched on technology a bit and technology has had an incredible impact on how we learn. And your research actually very much focuses on how technology is used in education. And you're also involved with a lot of companies that develop these educational technologies. So how is what we value in learning and in education? impacting the type of technology that is being developed. There's so much education ed tech out there, but is it being impacted by yeah. what we're valuing? I mean, th this is a real dilemma for both education and for the educational technology sector, mm -hmm. in my view. Um, and in a way, it's a little bit of an elephant in the room because one of the challenges you have if you're design if you're developing a company is you know ultimately you want to design a product you want to bring it to market and you want a sustainable business and in order to do that you need to identify your market and you need to really think about which part of that market is addressable and from that build out your business plan because if there aren't enough numbers there that that make sense there is no point in you building your product so right now if well, i would say 85 90 90% of the products on the market are going to a market that is already very established in the way that it works um, and the way that particularly the assessment of learning is currently functioning. So if we look at the explosion in tutoring companies 
all working digitally over the last 18 months. They grew because the education technology sector, if they spot a problem, will direct their efforts to try to, to address it. And the big problem we've got right now is how do we remediate um, learning for the many, many children who had a very disrupted school experience over the last 18 months. Yes. So right now, you know, developing a tutoring product is a highly sensible thing to do as a business because governments are throwing money at it. Uh, parents are willing to, to pay. And it's a really very, very um, new market that, that, you know, wasn't there in the same scale 18 months ago. Now, do we see in one-to-one -one online tutoring as the solution to all of the education problems we've just talked about? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. They'll address a tiny bit of it, but that's the direction that market, that's the direction EdTech has suddenly gone. And you look at the huge investments that were made um, over the last year or so into some of those companies, you know, that, that, that just uh, says it how it is. So what do we do about the little tiny companies who've got the really innovative groundbreaking technologies that do want to develop activities for online collaborative problem solving or do want to develop activities that really promote and support teamwork or critical thinking or design thinking when right now the education sector <laughs> and its current system isn't even asking for those things really. <laughs> So they don't get the investment, they don't get the attention and so many really exciting um, products which are geared in that direction fail to scale, fail to be sustained. Um, and that's a big problem. So where do we set aside? And it's interesting because um, Seymour Papert, who was the father really of, of educational technology, although you know he was far more mm -hmm. than that as a philosopher and a learning scientist, um, but he always maintained that we should be maintained, you know, we should keep 20% of our curriculum time, our headspace, 20% of everything for that transformative looking to the future uh, direction. And, you know, maybe education technology funding should be like that. You know, 80% should go to the bread and butter, what works for now, but we need to invest in that 20% that is going to take us in a new direction, very explicitly and very obviously, because otherwise we're never going to enable that to grow and, and, and start to have an impact on the other 80. Um, so, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, none of these transformations happen overnight, but we need to be building out and, and, uh, not just uh, the products themselves, but our understanding of them. I think it's really important that we continue to explore those um, emerging technologies or that those emerging pedagogies relating to technologies to really understand if they're feasible, desirable, and worth uh, investing more in. Absolutely. And the big question is, what do we do in order to really recognize that? I mean, as you said, we need to go through, is it feasible, desirable? But what should we be changing in the system? What should, because of course you go to something like the big ed tech show in London, the bet, and you see every year there's a different trend. And I remember going a few years ago and I just saw VR everywhere. And I kept asking, do you really see that as applicable in a classroom? I mean, there's a very limited 
aspect in which applicable, but so many companies don't seem to be necessary. What needs yeah. to change? Really? I mean, I, I've got a solution to this. It's actually in a project proposal that uh, <laughs> I hope gets funded. Okay. But, um, <laughs> I'll give you, a, I'll give you a sneak preview. I think what's been what we've done um, over the last well over the last twenty years is it, we've had a very tech-centric view on how emerging technology is going to impact and transform the uh, education technology and education system. And one of the things that we've overlooked in all of this is that central to any change in anything that goes on in schools is the teacher. And then ultimately, rather than starting with the technologies, it's the teachers we should be putting all of our um, support and energy and effort into uh, thinking about the way that we can enable them to keep pace with this incredible dynamic technological change, which isn't going to go away um, and is going to be continually the thing that um, everyone is going to be grappling with. So, so by thinking about how we support teachers in their lifelong professional learning, I would say, to be able to stay abreast of these technologies by giving them what we would call test bed opportunities to get introduced to that new VR tool, don't need to think about what the company says it does or doesn't do for them to take it into their classroom with learners think about how they would use it think about what value it may or may not add and feedback their story in a much more crowdsourced way to the general research on you know brs in, in education so you know by actually flipping it and um, supporting teachers to have those very first lessons and to be supported with resources to reflect, to plan and reflect on those early lessons, I think is a critical and as yet untapped source that we really need to put our energies and effort to. So my transformation would be to find more opportunities to scale and sustain all teachers around the world to have those experiences, um, to enable us just to learn more, because really that's where our learnings will come from, what, how these different technologies play out in real classrooms. Um, and then from that, we'll make them better because we need that data from the teachers to help the companies to really um, think through their designs. Exactly. And companies really need to recognize that because I mean, there's no lack of research that says we don't pay enough attention to the teacher and how creatively how they're implementing the new technology and your research written so much about this and you and I have discussed this many times about the fact that technology really fails because of the implementation at the teacher and because the teachers being ignored by the tech company um, and the implementation process often absolutely Another important factor is that, you know, governments need to recognize within any sort of professional development and support programs that they have for teachers, that this is a really critical factor. Um, so it can't just be left to the tech companies to upskill the teachers for their individual respective technologies. There's a much more holistic view needed, whereby you have some expectation for teachers to recognize where their digital skills are and where their digital skills need to go to and then know where to find resources to support them on that so they're sort of self there's a, there's a number of self um, assessment self-evaluation frameworks out there for teachers around technical skills in education how are those actually operationalize and how are they the teachers supported and funded i mean the support needs to come from somewhere to 
help them on that process because it isn't going away. <laughs> uh, you know, the technologies are becoming increasingly complex. They're increasingly interoperable. So, you know, knowing about one isn't enough. You need to know how it integrates with other. Yeah, the really critical aspect has got to be how the education system, and I'm thinking of governments and districts now at that level, how they provide the resources to support teachers to be continually upskilled with respect to digital um, in education. Um, so we know we've got a number of evaluation tools and rubrics that help teachers to think through where, where they might need to develop further, but we also need to have the next steps. Um, and that needs funding, that needs careful design, and that's dynamic too. So we need to even approach that. We can't just send teachers on courses anymore because things time out too quickly in the educational technology world so I think it is taking a much more lifelong view in the way that we brought teachers to have this digital upskilling. Absolutely and the I mean the call to action is very clear because it's increasingly obvious that the technologies come and fail very very quickly and this is the reason why because the teachers are not being fully integrated into the process of developing and integrating the technology by governments and the companies. And at the end of the day, when it, you know people look at the redesign of a system, it seems expensive, it seems very time consuming, it seems difficult, but it's already very expensive and very difficult because as you and I have, have discussed, I mean, the technologies come and go. It's very clear that it's not having the impact it should that's expensive for schools to be now buying a new laptop, then new iPads, then new virtual reality, all hoping to save the world. But in fact, they're not doing as much as they could be doing for this very reason. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A huge topic. And, and you write a lot about it. What do you see as the most exciting developments right now in the education space, both in terms of the research and also the technology? Yeah, so on the research side, I think I have to say, I mean, it's not ever such a new exciting development, but there's still an awful lot of educational researchers that aren't aware of new methodologies, new research mm -hmm. methodologies. And I think that, you know, design-based research, which really started to, as an awareness of it in the early 2000s, is really much more developed as a methodology. And what that adds is, in, in a way, it takes those sort of design thinking approaches, the sort of scrum methodologies of the mm -hmm. business world, and puts it into the research context, whereby it gives us as researchers an approach that lets us be cyclical in the way that we design solutions and I think that's the difference here is in your traditional educational research the methods are very much focused they're sort of predetermined and then enacted and you know when studies take two three years involving educational technology things have just timed out a lot earlier so you know the whole purpose for a lot of research studies have lost their way very early on because the technology has moved on or the context has moved on or some curriculum change has happened and, and, and it's no longer um, needed or valid. So design-based research methodologies allow for co-design. They allow you to design with developers, with teachers, practitioners, learners, parents, whoever the main stakeholders are in the research um, for the research that you're doing. And at the same time, as a research researcher, I can still tell my theoretical story through my designs. 
I can still evolve my methodologies. So methodologies I might need in an early phase will differ from those I might want in a later phase of the study. Um, and also communicate that really clearly so that the, the narrative and the element of the research that is in some ways re reliable or replicable, it, the research will never be repli replicable, but the methodology may well be appropriate to another context. So what we do is we as researchers give away our secrets to some extent. You know, how do we do things? How do we arrive at certain judgments or findings? We do it in such an explicit way. We share our tools, we share our data where we can, and that really opens it up as a learning exercise for everybody. So, you know, even research itself is uh, an aspect of lifelong learning, I would yes. say. You know, for the teachers involved, for the companies involved, they all leave with much more than the findings of the study, mm -hmm. many of which don't really concern them. What they learn with is new insights into understanding learning, understanding technology, and then hopefully understanding some of the social and political and, and cultural impacts of that story on, the, on their particular situation. Mm. Absolutely. Wow. Yes. Um... That is, that is huge. And, and we've definitely covered a lot of ground and a lot of very important topics that people should dig into further and, uh, and read about further because they're, they're very important, but it all does come together in this. How do we rethink what learning and education should be and what do we value in it? So that's, that's really interesting. But before we end, I just, I like to ask about a recommendation, what you would recommend to read or watch in this space. That was such a great question you asked me, Kinga, because I've had a book and it's very, I mean, I don't, funnily enough, I don't read a lot outside of my area. I spend so much of my working day and life reading academic papers and publications <laughs> and edited journals and whatever, that when it comes to sort of what would be clean as non-academic for me, uh, one, a book landed in my lap in the summer, which I was absolutely glued to and has really had a very, I would say, very profound impact on, on, on me and, and the way I'm thinking at the moment. And the book's called Humankind. It's by Rutger Bregman. And it's a a fantastic book because it really is trying to put the record straight I would say on what's seen as a, a sort of a common perception that you know humans are inherently bad if there's a way to trick the, trick the system or cheat the system or get the upper hand they will take it and, and everybody's out there sort of tread on everybody to get to the top um, and I, I've never aspired to that view I've always felt that humans are inherently kind and mm -hmm. that humans will inherit do good and I think the evidence of being able to walk the streets safely and 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 you know on the whole wherever yes. you are um feel that um you know th things are okay um it's the it's definitely a cup that's more than half full um and that's a book that I think is just full of revisiting some of the what would be seen as age-old perceptions around um around the way that humans behave from both sociological biological uh, looking at literature really taking a whole range of sources to argue that the human race is inherently kind and if we go forward with that perception it means we don't have to have expensive examinations that we, we trust what the learner says we trust <laughs> we trust the voices of the people in the system we don't impose things on the system because we don't actually trust each other and I think that's that's uh, really at the heart of a lot of this so that's uh, fantastic I, I, I recommend that book to everybody <laughs> wonderful that is a very very 
a timely book, both in terms of lifting us up and seeing the the positives in our humanity in general, but also, as you said, an important way to rethink what we value in education and trust each other a lot more. And that is a really wonderful thing. Well, Alison, it's an absolute pleasure. Always so nice and so inspiring and insightful to talk to you. I always learn so much. So thank you very much again for being on the podcast. Thank you, Kinga.